This is our hope and our confidence. Let us now turn to God's Word so that He may teach us. We will turn first to the Old Testament, to 1 Kings chapter 3. First Kings 3, and we'll read that entire chapter. First Kings 3, beginning in verse 1. Solomon made, an, made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and said, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in upright, in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you, what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night, because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. 
When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, No, the living child is mine, and the dead child is yours. The first said, No, the dead child is yours, and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, The one says, This is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, No, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, Bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So far from 1 Kings 3, let's also turn to Proverbs chapter 2. The book of Proverbs, of course, being written by Solomon. Proverbs chapter 2, and we'll read that chapter also. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways." So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So far, God's word. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 37, stanza 12. The text that we'll be focusing on this morning is 1 Kings chapter 3, and especially the first half of that chapter, verses 1 through 
15. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the chapter that we have read is one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons that it's so memorable for many of us, both the first and the second half of the chapter, is that it challenges us. As we read the first half of the chapter, we're left wondering, would we have chosen what Solomon chose? If God had offered us anything that we desired, would we have chosen wisdom? In the second half of the chapter, the way the story is presented, you see both sides of the story, and there, there seems to be no clear way of discerning between which woman is telling the truth and which is lying. And we're left wondering, what kind of decision would we have made? Would we have chosen as Solomon chose? Before we get into this chapter, we need to keep chapter 2 in our minds. That's the context of this chapter. In chapter 2, we get some of the first glimpses of what Solomon was like as the new king. And it's a bit of a tough chapter to work through because it leaves you unsure of what to make of this new king, Solomon. It's clear as you read chapter 2, David loved him. David trusted him. He repeatedly encourages him to act according to his wisdom. And here also in chapter 3, it says that Solomon loved the Lord. So that seems to indicate that Solomon was a wise and and godly man. But in chapter 2, you can't help but have a few questions about the way Solomon reigns. You notice how ruthless he is, for one thing, towards his political opponents. In chapter 2, his brother Adonijah requests that, that beautiful woman that we saw a couple weeks ago, Abishag, who attended King David. His brother Adonijah asked that Abishag be given to him as a wife, sort of as a consolation for the fact that he never got the kingdom. And it seems like a humble and a reasonable request. Abishag had never slept with David, so it was a legitimate thing to be asking for. But Solomon interprets it as a second attempt to take the kingdom. And he immediately has Adonijah, his brother, executed just for asking the question. Was Solomon really being wise? Or was he just looking for an excuse to kill his brother? On the other hand, Solomon could have been right in interpreting it that way. The text doesn't say whether Solomon was correct or not. And if he was right, then he did the right thing. Adonijah had been warned not to make any further attempts on the kingdom. But we don't know. The text doesn't tell us whether Solomon was right. And the same thing is, is true for how Solomon deals with the other political enemies that he has in chapter 2. We're left asking, is he acting according to his wisdom or not? Is he being a godly king or not? It's really hard to tell. I read at least half a dozen commentaries as I was prepping for this sermon, and the commentaries themselves are very deeply divided on that question. Some say, yes, Solomon was being wise and godly, and others say, no, he was being ungodly, he was being wicked. Some say he's just a cold-blooded politician looking for excuses to kill his enemies, and that's entirely possible. And yet others say, well, maybe Solomon was right. Maybe his interpretation of Adonijah and the others was correct. 
And that same problem carries itself over here into chapter 3. Think of how chapter 3 begins. What do we make of Solomon's actions in verses 1 through 3? The very first thing he does, now that his enemies are all dead, he makes an alliance with Pharaoh by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. What do we make of that? A number of commentaries immediately jump on that and say that this has to be wrong because, after all, God had forbidden intermarriage with foreigners. But that's not exactly accurate. God hadn't forbidden marriage with all foreigners, just with Canaanites. In both of the places where that commandment is given, it specifically mentions the seven nations that lived in Canaan. Egypt is not mentioned there. So we should be careful not to overinterpret that, to immediately judge Solomon for, for that marriage. But of course, there is a risk that if you marry the daughter of Pharaoh, is she a believer? And if she's not, will she lead Solomon's heart astray? And of course, the text doesn't tell us anything about Pharaoh's daughter. And it gets even more complicated. If you do the math later, you realize that Solomon had already been married to another woman and had a son already by that woman. So does that immediately make it wrong? Well, many commentators say yes. Still, some say not necessarily. God had never forbidden polygamy explicitly. And after all, this was a political marriage. This is what kings did. And what complicates the whole question for us is what verse 3 tells us. Solomon loved the Lord. He loved him. That's the clearest statement that we have here about Solomon's character. He loved the Lord. Now, he didn't love the Lord perfectly. The text is honest about that. He still sacrificed at the high places, which was not something that he should have done. The text doesn't make excuses for him. But the text does clearly say that he loved the Lord. And Solomon is actually the only king in the entire book of Kings for which that is said. So we would love it if if Scripture simply told us that what Solomon was doing was wrong, what God thought about Solomon's actions. But Scripture doesn't tell us. And that's important because it sets the tone for the text that's in front of us. This text is about wisdom And as we read about Solomon's life so far and struggle over what do we make of his life, we're taught a very important lesson. Life requires wisdom. Discerning the will of God requires wisdom. We would love it if God would just give us a complete rule book with all of the answers to every question and every moral dilemma that we've ever had So that all we'd have to do is simply look it up and then we'd know the answer. But life doesn't work like that. Wisdom doesn't do that. Life just isn't made that way. And so as we look at Solomon's life so far, I think we're supposed to struggle with his decisions. Did he do the right thing in each of these cases? Well, it's not not clear and we're not sure. But one thing has been impressed upon us. Discerning the will of God requires wisdom, and we are in need of that wisdom. And that's where the text wants us to be as we go into the rest of chapter 3. Lord willing, another brother is going to be ordained to the office of elder in a couple of weeks. 
And you don't have to be in consistory for very long before you discover this. Life and leadership requires a great deal of wisdom. And every single man on consistory could use a little bit more of it. The answers don't fall from the sky with a little parachute. The decisions that they make are incredibly difficult. They take a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment, a lot of searching scripture. And each of the elders in this church are certainly aware of their need for a greater measure of God's wisdom. All we can do is search God's word for the guiding principles and then from there make our decisions, acting according to the wisdom that he gives. And that doesn't mean that men in leadership will always make the right decisions or even that they will necessarily come to agreements. Discerning the will of God is not a simple black and white matter of searching out the rule book. The same principle is true for the parents among us. New parents often make the joke, why didn't this kid come with a manual? We often wonder, why did God design the world this way, entrusting the most important job in the world, raising the next generation, to people with no experience whatsoever? Parents are often left wondering, did they make the right decision? Are they raising their children rightly? And those decisions become even more difficult in the teenage years. Life requires wisdom, and most of us would recognize we could use a little more wisdom. So the first verses of our text then prepare us for Solomon's encounter with the Lord by teaching us that important lesson. Life requires wisdom, and wisdom is not something that is easily obtained. You can't take a crash course in wisdom. You can't learn it in school or go to college and take the wisdom course, and then there you have it. It doesn't work like that. There's no wisdom for dummies available at Barnes and Nobles. And yet, wisdom is going to make the difference between a life that is well-lived and a life that is disastrous. So that prepares us for Solomon's encounter with God in verse 4. It says, The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place where Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. And at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. It's an amazing offer from God. Undoubtedly, there would have been a thousand things on Solomon's mind, a thousand things that he would have wanted. Security would have been very near the top of that list. There was huge potential still for the kingdom to crumble under him. And not only that, but there were enemies of all kinds around him. The ancient Near East was not at all a nice or a safe place to live. The empires there were cruel and terrifying. I can't help but imagine that I would have asked for them all to be obliterated so that we could live in peace. Riches would have been an attractive choice as well. Money is power, they say. Or long life, especially in a time when, when life was often so short because of violence or because of diseases. And so this text then offers an implicit challenge to the rest of us as we read this. You can't help but ask yourself, what would I have chosen if God had told me, ask what I shall give you. Well, notice that Solomon begins his answer by describing God's faithfulness to his father David. In verse 6, he says, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in all faithfulness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. 
Notice how, how Solomon puts acknowledging God's faithfulness before his request, before his prayer. He begins by acknowledging God's faithfulness. Just because God has made him a great offer doesn't mean he ought to presume upon God's faithfulness. It is right and it is appropriate for us also to honor God for the faithfulness he has shown us before even getting to any of our requests. And Solomon makes a second observation as well that's worth our our noticing. I believe this is key to understanding also his request for wisdom. Notice that Solomon acknowledges that God's faithfulness to his father David is tied to David's faithfulness towards God. Now, that's not to say that God only showed as much faithfulness to David as he showed back to him. No, that's not true at all. Solomon knew about his father's failures. He knew that God had blessed him beyond what he had deserved. But at the same time, he recognized that God's blessing and God's favor are tied to our faith and our obedience. If David had walked away from God for good, he would have forfeited God's promises. And that's what's behind Solomon's prayer for wisdom. He recognized that he too would be tested just like his father David was tested. Yes, God is slow to anger. God is abounding in steadfast love. But he will also surely punish those who turn their back on him. And great responsibilities like kingship come with many opportunities to ruin oneself and to do great damage to God's people. And so Solomon continued, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am but a little child. Just to be clear, by the way, Solomon was not literally just a little child. If you do the math, he was around 21 years old, so it's a figure of speech. But he continues, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? There's several things we should notice here about Solomon's request. First, notice he's not just praying in his own interest. God had told him, ask what I shall give you. But Solomon's heart was also on God's people. And that's important. He wanted to do the right thing, not just for himself, but for God's people. He was as concerned for them as he was for himself. As we saw earlier, verse 3 says that Solomon loved the Lord, and there can be no love for the Lord without also an overflowing love for God's people. Second, notice that Solomon is, is deeply aware of his own inadequacy. He prays for wisdom because he recognizes that he doesn't have it in himself, and he admits that before God. This is the man who wrote those famous words of Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. That's exactly what we see him doing in these verses. He was very much impressed with the greatness of the responsibility that God had given him. And it brought him to his knees with a deep sense of inadequacy. Those moments when we're first entrusted with great responsibility, whether that's ordination to office or when we first become parents, 
or whenever any great responsibility is given to us, those moments often bring with them that deep sense of inadequacy. Many of us can relate to that feeling. And it's good that those moments do that to us. That's a healthy emotion. We ought to cultivate that emotion, to keep it there, remembering the greatness of our calling. It's very easy to forget over time the greatness even of the responsibility of raising a child, for that, for that responsibility to wear off on us. It has a great and humbling effect to keep the greatness of the responsibilities God gives us always before us. That causes us to seek God earnestly, to recognize our need for his guidance. We'll never sincerely seek wisdom and guidance from God until we are aware of the fact that we need it, and we need it very badly. People aren't born wise. Much of Proverbs is Exactly that point. It's a polemic against the fool who believes that he is born wise, who trusts in his own understanding. Proverbs 26, verse 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. So we see that Solomon prayed first in the interests of God's people, secondly, because he was aware of his own inadequacy, and thirdly, Notice exactly what Solomon is praying for. He he asks, Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Literally, the Hebrew text says, Give your servant a heart that listens. That's key to understanding what Solomon was praying for and what the text would also teach us. See, we often think of Wisdom as sort of synonymous with knowledge, and and that's partly true, but wisdom is a lot more than knowledge. An essential part of wisdom is a heart attitude that is eager to listen, that is eager to learn, that wants to know more and understand better. The Apostle James teaches us in James 1 verse 19, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak. And slow to anger. Fools assume that they already know everything that they need to know. And therefore they're also quick to jump to conclusions. Quick to show their emotions. Wisdom knows that there's much that it does not yet know. And it's eager then to learn it. Now that expression, a heart that listens. It begs the question, listens to to whom? And I believe there's a two-part answer to that question, listens to whom. In the first place, Solomon is deliberately being general. He wants a heart that is eager to listen in general. As ruler over Israel, as supreme court, supreme judge, he's going to be faced with many difficult, challenging cases. And he's going to need to be very good at listening, just in general, being able to listen if he's going to make the right decisions. Failure to listen could very quickly ruin his legacy. It could even lead to his downfall. You might think of Saul, who failed to listen to the counsel of his own son, Jonathan. Or you might think of Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, who failed to listen when the people brought a legitimate grievance against him and ultimately lost 10 of the 12 tribes as a result. So Solomon recognized that leadership was going to require a great deal of wisdom, and the first principle of wisdom is the ability to learn and listen. 
But there's a second answer to that question. Listens to whom? Because not all listening will lead to wisdom. Proverbs 14 says, Leave the presence of a fool, for there you do not find words of knowledge. So it's necessary to have a heart that's eager to listen, eager to learn. But a wise heart also discerns where knowledge is to be found and where it is not to be found. And in order to do that, wisdom then needs a higher principle, a voice that it listens to above all of the other voices. If all one had was a heart that listens, there would be no guarantee that one would be wise because there are far more foolish voices shouting out than wise voices. True wisdom also needs the ability to distinguish between the two. And to do that, wisdom then needs a higher principle that judges between wisdom and folly. And that principle is the fear of God. It's one of the greatest themes of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. The fear of the Lord. The word fear it doesn't, doesn't necessarily adequately translate that, that expression. Uh, respect maybe would be a better translation or reverence. It doesn't mean fear in the sense of fear that God might lash out at any moment, because that's not who God is. It isn't that kind of fear. But it's the awe and the reverence and the the careful respect that sinners ought to have before a righteous, holy, powerful, and perfect God, whose ways are higher than our ways, who delights in righteousness, who doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. The fear of the Lord, then, is that, that... humbling, caution-inducing, life-changing recognition that everything we do and say and even think is done before the face of God. It's the recognition that we were created by Him and for Him and that He is the source of all that is true and all that is right. And that, that proverb says, is the very beginning of wisdom. So when Solomon prays here for a heart that listens... In the first place, he means a heart that listens to God himself. And you can see that that's on his mind, even by the way that he frames his prayer. As I mentioned earlier, Solomon acknowledges that God's faithfulness was tied to David's faithfulness. Solomon recognized that if his reign is to be successful, he's going to need a heart that always relies on God for wisdom and discernment. A heart whose, whose ear, so to speak, is always attuned to God's voice, always ready to hear what God would say in the first place. That is essential to true wisdom. So the focus in Solomon's request is, the focus in his request for wisdom is the ability to discern God's will, the, the ability to discern good from evil. It isn't just a factual knowledge either of of the difference between good and evil, but an acquaintance with what is good, a rejection of what is evil. So that's Solomon's prayer. As I've mentioned, the implicit challenge again in this story is, is that what we would have prayed for? Is that our choice as well? Well, the text says that God was pleased, God was delighted with Solomon's request. That's verse 10. God delighted in Solomon's response. And that's because God delights in wisdom. God loves wisdom. 
He loves wisdom because it's essential to his own character. He is the source of all wisdom. Wisdom has its very foundation in him as God. Wisdom rejoices in the truth, and God himself is the truth. So wisdom was the right thing for Solomon to ask for. It was the right request that God wanted him to ask for. Solomon desired the best thing. Wisdom is the best thing to desire. And so God said to him in verse 11, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern between To discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Brothers and sisters, when when we pray for wisdom, God delights to give it to us. He loves to give wisdom to those who ask for it. Think of James 1 verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without any reproach, and it will be given to him. God delights to give wisdom to those who ask for it. He's not stingy with that gift. He's generous if we're serious about pursuing it and asking for it from him. See, Solomon desired the best thing, and God delighted in that request, and he was honored by that request, because by praying this, Solomon recognized that God himself is the source of wisdom. True wisdom comes from him. And so as a result, God also then gave him what he even didn't ask for, riches and honor and long life if Solomon walked in God's ways. We're reminded of the words that the Lord Jesus taught us. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, food, drink, clothing, etc., will be added to you. The result of Solomon's wisdom was he was blessed in a thousand other ways. A life that is lived in the fear of the Lord is a life that is lived well. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, but it extends into every area of life. And that's exactly what we see in Solomon's life. I won't be preaching on the next several chapters, but the focus in those chapters is the wisdom that God gave Solomon. They're there to highlight all of the wisdom that Solomon had from God. Wisdom has been defined by some as the skillful management of life. And that's a good definition of wisdom because it shows how diverse the application of wisdom can be. Wisdom is the ability to live life well. One commentator put it this way, There are many people who are smart enough to make a good living, but aren't wise enough to make a good life. And and life that begins with the fear of God, it then branches out into a love for what is true, what is right, a delight in all of God's ways. And the continued application of that kind of wisdom leads to a life that is rich, a life that is fulfilling, a life that is God-honoring. 
The world defines a fulfilling life as a life that experiences the most pleasures or accumulates the most possessions. But a truly fulfilling life is a life that finds its meaning and its purpose in God who gives it and then learns to understand the world in which God has placed this person, the world that God has created, and learns how to work with that world to God's glory. That's a truly fulfilling life. And such a life then, as a general rule, and you see it with Solomon also, such a life leads to flourishing. It works. See, folly doesn't work because folly doesn't embrace the truth. It embraces a lie. And so it finds itself unable to work with the world that God has created. If it doesn't start with the fear of God, it ends up in all kinds of confusion. Folly uses a wrench to hammer a nail, so to speak, or a hammer to turn a screw, and then never understands why things keep breaking. That's the life of folly. Wisdom, though, embraces God, and then also then, as a result, embraces the world that God has created, and as a result of that, lives well in the world that God has made and flourishes in that life. So I mentioned the next several chapters of this book of, uh, of the book of Kings describe the wisdom of Solomon in all of the different ways that it's manifested. The first part of chapter 4 describes Solomon's wisdom in economic affairs. He made good, godly, wise economic decisions. Or in social programs, or in military, in his organization of the military. In his learning and in his knowledge of culture, you see all of these different aspects of God's wisdom. His wisdom, of Solomon's wisdom, that is. His wisdom was recognized by foreign countries. Think of the Queen of Sheba or the King of Tyre. His wisdom was evident in the hundreds of details that you see in the construction of his palace and the construction of the temple. His wisdom is evident in the glory and the splendor of his kingdom. Even the Queen of Sheba comes from what was then the other side of the world. And when she does, she exclaims, Happy are your men. This is 1 Kings 10, verse 8. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. So wisdom begins there with the fear of God, but it extends into every area of life. True wisdom is inherently beautiful, inherently rich, and there's something irresistibly attractive and beautiful and winsome about a life that is wisely lived. That's what you see in the visit from the Queen of Sheba. And then notice, as a result of Solomon's wisdom... Solomon was blessed in every way imaginable, and God was glorified. Think of what the Queen of Sheba said, Blessed be your God. Or think of even the case of the two prostitutes in this chapter. At the very end, after Solomon issues his judgment, the people were amazed, and they recognized that his great wisdom came from God. You see that in verse 28. All Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. So because wisdom comes from God and find its, finds its foundation in the fear of God, then whenever it's, it's demonstrated in all of these thousands of ways, it has the effect of glorifying God. 
People see true wisdom and they are compelled to glorify God who gives it. God is the one who is honored when his people are wise. So then in in a couple minutes we have left, let's turn to some points of application for ourselves. First, I want to pick up again on that point that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we desire to be wise, as Solomon was wise, it must begin with a deep, holy reverence and love for God. Wisdom embraces the truth, and God is truth. Pieces of wisdom, yes, can be found apart from God. The world can pick up on pieces of wisdom. People still live in a world that was made by God, and so they can make observations from that world. But without the knowledge of God to give light to the soul, even the wisest, the most perceptive observers like Socrates or Buddha or Gandhi, they will still be lost in darkness because they don't know the truth himself. And that leads to our second point of application, and probably the most important point. True wisdom from God is found in Jesus Christ. I can't overstate the point. The New Testament is so emphatic about this point. Christ is even called in several places the wisdom of God. Think of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 24. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Think of Colossians 2 verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now it's a strange expression. We might be confused by that. How can Jesus be the wisdom of God? What does that even mean for Jesus to be God's wisdom? Well, what it means is this. Wisdom is an essential characteristic of God, just like truth, just like righteousness, like holiness. These are God's perfections, God's essential attributes. And Christ, Hebrews 1 says, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. So Christ is the radiance of all of those perfections that God has, whether that's wisdom, truth, power, holiness, or whatever other perfection of God. As those radiant, radiate from Christ, from God, Christ is the radiance of all of those things. So in other words, when we look at Christ, we see the wisdom and the power and the knowledge of God. God is seen through Christ All of God's perfections are seen in him. Christ is how God makes himself known. So God is infinitely wise. God is beautifully wise. And that wisdom is seen in Christ. And so if if Christ is the wisdom of God, here's the important point for us. If Christ is the wisdom of God, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom then we can impress upon ourselves that same fear of God, that same reverence for God by looking at Christ. We are taught to know God. We are taught to fear God by knowing and and, and loving Christ. We are taught to respect God by clinging to Christ. Through the gospel of Christ, we find the knowledge of God, and through that then also the wisdom of God. Apart from the gospel, there is no knowledge of God to be found. 
If we weren't reconciled to God through Christ in the first place, in fact, we wouldn't even want to know God because it would be a terrible, frightening knowledge. So the point is this then, if wisdom begins in the fear of God, then wisdom begins in the gospel of Christ. If we are to be wise, truly wise, in the sense that our entire lives are characterized by God's wisdom, then we must begin with the gospel. The gospel needs to dominate our thinking and our feeling and our knowing and our doing. It's the beginning and it's the overruling pattern of wisdom. And it should be the beginning and overruling pattern of our lives. You cannot know God except through the gospel of Christ. And you cannot be wise without the knowledge of God. So then with the gospel as our foundation, we can begin to pursue wisdom in every area of life. And that's our third and final point of application. Solomon wrote in in Proverbs 3, verse 13, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and the profit better than gold. She, wisdom, is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. What a description of wisdom, and what a reason to pursue wisdom with all of our heart. It's exactly what we saw in Solomon's own life. He recognized that wisdom is the best thing to desire. He chose wisdom over riches and honor and long life because wisdom is better than any one of those things. In fact, wisdom is the source of all of those things. And the text here then calls us to make the same choice as redeemed people, as people living in the joy of the gospel, as people who know God. Let us also desire the best thing as Solomon desired it. Choose wisdom, pursue wisdom above everything else in all of its thousands of applications. God delights in our pursuit of wisdom. He delights in seeing our lives characterized by wisdom because God himself is glorified when his people are wise. Nothing is more valuable to us than a heart that listens, as Solomon prayed for, and a heart that listens above everything to God. And then as a result of that, also listens to the world that God has made, to the wisdom that God has given to others. Pursue that with all your might. It's a message especially for young people. Tune your heart above everything to God's word. And then from that standpoint, make, make it your every effort to cultivate wisdom, to gain wisdom, to let your life be characterized by wisdom. And a good starting place for that is the book of Proverbs itself. Every verse contains instruction that is of great benefit to those who would sit and meditate and let those truths sink into their hearts. And young people, the book of Proverbs is written especially for you. It was written from a father to his son. So learn it, memorize it, make every effort to understand it and to apply its truths to your life. And in this, we can recognize we have a major advantage against the rest of the world. You don't have to look long to recognize the world does not get wisdom. The world is never going to find wisdom by their efforts. It doesn't matter how smart they might be. 
In fact, the places where you seem to find the most foolishness, the most stupidity, is in the halls of the universities and academia. There they insist that up is down and down is up and right is wrong and ugly is beautiful. That's where you find the greatest foolishness in the world. The world is never going to understand God's wisdom or excel in knowledge or beauty because they're profoundly deceived at the very heart point, the very nature of the world itself and the God who reigns over it. And so because the path to wisdom begins in the gospel, Christians who know God have an opportunity to surpass the world in leaps and bounds in the attaining of wisdom. And we ought to do so. Think of how the Queen of Sheba rejoiced at Solomon's wisdom and glorified God as a result. So we also ought to pursue wisdom with all our might for God's glory. That wisdom begins with the knowledge of God, but as I mentioned, it extends into every area of life as we pursue God's will. And the starting point for that then is the law of God. Think of how the Psalms praise God's law as making wise the simple. Or what we sang earlier today, that the law of God is sweeter than honey. That's the beauty of the Christian life. We've been freed from the curse of the law so that now we can start obeying the law from our hearts. Think of the way that Moses described the law as he gave it to the people of Israel. He said, keep these laws and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great and wise and understanding people. Oh, that that would be our testimony to the world around us, to this broken world that knows nothing of beauty or goodness or wisdom. That they would see our renewed lives and say, what a wise people and what a wise God that this people has. The way of life that scripture teaches us is the way of wisdom. And since we're freed now from the curse of the law, let us pursue obedience to the law from the heart because the law is good. The law gives life. It gives joy. God didn't give his commandments to limit our joy or to squelch our joy or pleasure, but in fact, to maximize our joy and our delight. So then, brothers, let us pursue wisdom. Let us seek it with all of our might. To do so, we know we must begin with the gospel. True wisdom will never be found except there. We are God's children through the gospel. Our sins are covered by Christ's blood. We're received into God's favor. And that's our starting point for the pursuit of wisdom. Through the gospel, we come face to face with the glory and the wisdom of God. And through the gospel, we begin to understand what it means to fear God, to reverence him, to love him, to pursue him with all our might. That is the very beginning of wisdom. And so as those who have been reconciled, let us then honor God by also pursuing wisdom with all of our might for our own joy as a renewed creation, discovering what again it really means to live and for his glory so that he might be glorified when we become wise, so that people may see our beautiful, winsome, joyful way of life and say what a wise God that they have so that in us the world may see glimpses of what we have begun to know ourselves, the glorious, beautiful, sweet, 
delightful wisdom of God himself. Amen. Let us respond by singing together from Psalm 111, stanza 1 through 5.